Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into God's Word. Father, thank you for this day. Father, thank you for your word. And we know that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. And so we know, God, that you will take that seed, that precious seed of the word, and you'll plant it deep in our hearts. And God, help us to comprehend with the height, the, the, height, the depth, the breadth, of the love of God that surpasses all knowledge. May the words of my mouth, may the meditation of all of our hearts please you. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Let's stand as we read God's word. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20 and 21. Paul writes, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You may be seated. Why do we have this inner need to be perfect, to look perfect, to act perfect, to portray a perfect life. Some of you in the room or those watching online may be perfectionists. A perfectionist is someone who strives for flawlessness, for a perfect creation, a perfect outcome, a perfect performance. And people that are perfectionists find it difficult to delegate, even if that means neglecting their health or relationships or even their own well-being in the pursuit of a perfect outcome. In our social media age, as we have now more media, more stuff, people are sharing more photos, more things, more ideas. In our, in our social media age, the desire per, per, for perfection is, has been greatly exposed among the younger generation. According to recent studies, 28% of 16 to 24-year-olds experience ongoing anxiety, depression, and even panic disorders out of their need to be perfect. Uh, in a, a Guardian, which is a, a, a newspaper from London, England, uh, there was an interview of five women who struggled with perfectionism. And one of those women is a lady by the name of Miranda. She's an 18-year-old, and here's what she said. She said, I certainly feel the pressure to be perfect, and it's gotten to the point where it's damaging my health. Social media is the main culprit. I had to delete my Instagram account because it would actually make me cry. I'm a mature person with a grip with a firm grip on reality, but I have so many peers whose lives seem so perfect and sociable that it left me feeling worthless and lonely. Maybe your struggle isn't social media, but maybe you have the same feelings as Miranda. Maybe you feel worthless and lonely. 
You know, we all struggle with a desire to look or to be perfect. And the reason why is because deep down inside of us, we know that we're not perfect. This is this inner insecurity that all of us have. And and that inner insecurity is what drives us to try to be something that we're not. Modern psychologists tell us that the answer to insecurity is to have a greater self-image. And so psychologists will say that we are to remind ourselves daily just how, to, just how great of a person that we are and how special we are. That's what Barney taught us, right? I love you, you love me, you are special. Just like the Legos movie, everybody's awesome. The problem is, is that when we look in the mirror, we don't feel special. Because deep down inside of us, we're broken. We know that we're broken. We know there's something wrong. And so the answer, so the question I want to ask and I want to answer today is, 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 there, is there a solution to the insecurity? Is there an answer to the problem of the brokenness that all of us feel? And the answer is yes. The answer to this quandary of brokenness is found in the gospel message. And so Paul here is writing to a church, writing to a church in Corinth. Corinth was a very messed up town, metropolitan, very affluent, um, had a lot of just kind of sinful practices. Uh, There were men who dressed as women and women who dressed as men. There was a lot of confusion, sexual perversion, a lot of just disruption and division. And so Paul comes into this very affluent town that's very messed up, and he preaches the only message that has the power to change lives forever, the message of the gospel. And he now is writing to people who have believed the gospel, and he tells them that you as a believer are an ambassador for Christ. And that is that God is making his appeal to the broken world through you. And so in the first century Roman Empire, an ambassador was someone who was personally appointed by the emperor to represent the interest of the kingdom and the interest of the king. And so Paul says that if you are a Christian, you are an ambassador. You are called to live a life that represents the interests of the kingdom of God and represents the message of the king. And so for you and I to be successful In our job as ambassadors, we must have a clear understanding of what the message that we've been entrusted with to share. And so Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, gives us the gospel in a nutshell, gives us the message, the succinct message. And and in it, this is what Martin Luther called this, this verse, the great exchange. And in it, we see that Jesus lived a life I couldn't live. And Jesus died a death that I should have died, and Jesus won a war that I could never win. And so over these next three weeks, we're going to unpack those three things, that Jesus lived a life I couldn't live, Jesus died a death I should have died, and Jesus won a battle or won a war uh, that I could never win. And so today, as we look at Jesus' perfect life, living a life I could not live, we see his impeccable character, his incredible claims, and his inexhaustible compassion. So let's just unpack that this morning. Number one, his impeccable character. Verse 21 says this, for our sakes, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus is the one that Paul is referring to here. Paul here is affirming the sinlessness of Jesus. Uh, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born in a little town called Bethlehem, lived and grew, lived on planet earth. He knew what it was to sin, or he knew what sin was, but he did not know what it was like to sin. And the reason why, because Jesus didn't sin and he had no desire to sin. And so what Paul is affirming is that Jesus is sinless 
in his humanity. No one has ever lived at the human life sinless other than Jesus. You say, well, pastor, I'm not a sinner. Well, you're a liar, which makes you a sinner. Now, Jesus was sinless. He didn't fall short of God's standards. His sinlessness, however, does not merely serve as an example to follow. It's not that Jesus lived a perfect life, therefore you must be perfect like Jesus. No, it doesn't just merely serve as an example to follow, but Jesus' sinlessness is fundamental and necessary for our salvation. If Jesus is not sinless, we have no salvation. See, the Bible clearly teaches the sinless humanity of Christ. Starting with Old Testament prophecy, some 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah the prophet wrote in Isaiah 53 verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we, yet without sin. Peter talking about the sacrifice of Jesus, that, that, that it was a perfect sacrifice. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 says, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 John chapter 3, John tells us, The reason why Jesus came, that you know he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. When you read the Gospels, as you just go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you you see very little, if any, description of what Jesus actually looked like. But what you do see as you read the Gospels is a remarkable emphasis on the content of his character rather than the cut of his jib. And what you see is the gospel writers are talking about Jesus is that Jesus lived an incredibly impressive life. His character was impeccable and remarkable. Even a Roman centurion who perhaps maybe was a part of nailing Jesus to the cross after seeing Jesus on the cross said, surely this man was innocent. So the question that a lot of people have this time of year in regards to this, is that why did Jesus have to die? And we're going to talk about that next week. Why did he have to die? But the question we're going to look at this week, which is another question that we really don't ever think about, is why did Jesus have to live? I mean, we believe that Jesus came to pay the price for our sins through his death. But why would God, why would God the Father have in his plan that Jesus would live 33 years plus on the face of the earth? Why didn't, if, if, the, if, if all that was necessary was the death of Christ to pay for the sins of humanity, why didn't God just let King Herod kill Jesus as a baby and then there wouldn't be all this rigmarole? Why did Jesus live as long as Jesus lived? That's a great question, and I know you're a smart group of people, and I appreciate you asking that this morning. So let's find the answer. And the answer is this. Jesus lived a perfect life for 33 plus years on earth, to fulfill the law of Moses perfectly. Now, the law of Moses. Now, some of you are like, you're new to church. like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm kind of tracking with you, preacher, but what do you mean? Well, think about the Ten Commandments. That's part of God's law. There are 613 laws in the Old Testament 
Torah and the law of Moses, but let's just focus on 10 of them. And maybe you've heard of the 10 commandments. You should not have any other gods before you. You should not make any graven images. You should honor your father and your mother. Uh, you shall not lie. You shall not steal. You shall not murder. You shall not sleep with somebody that you're not married to. You shouldn't covet what someone else has. There's, that's not all of them, but that's some of them. And so that's the law. And the law that God gave his people wasn't just some sort of uh, narcissistic thing of an egomaniacal God. It wasn't some God who was just trying to ruin your life and keep you from having fun. God gave us his law, which is meant for our good. And it expressed to humanity how God intends for his people to live. This is the instructions by which we are to live our lives. And so God's commandments teach us how to live life to the fullest within a fallen, broken world. And so God's way is always the best and his design is always perfect. And so it's a gift. Now, some of you, you think the law, you think Old Testament, you think negative and nasty and self-righteous people. And, and why is that? The, because the problem is, is that even though the law is a gift, it's also a mirror. It's a mirror that shows us how bad we truly are. You know, from a distance, I'm pretty good looking. <laughs> like some of you sitting in the far back, you're like, man, he's, he's, he's a good looking dude. But you get closer and the illusion kind of fades. You know, from a distance in the mirror, I'm like a seven or an eight. You get closer to a mirror, I'm like a three, okay? Why is that? Because from further away, you don't see it, but you get closer and see the further you are from God's word, the Bible, you don't see yourself as bad as everyone else. But the closer you come encountering God's word and God's standard and God's intentions, the, the uglier you see. Now, let me give you another illustration. Just imagine I give someone a book, a really, really good book, that they, but they can't read it all. So I give them a book. What would you say a book? Kind of one of the, I think one of the greatest books in Christian literature, in, in English Christian literature outside the Bible is Pilgrim's Progress. And so let's say I give a very rare edition of Pilgrim's Progress and I give it to somebody who cannot read. They may appreciate the gift. They may be grateful to receive the gift. They, they may kind of understand some of the pictures and see some of the letters, but they can't read it at all. And no matter how good the book is, no matter how good the intentions of me giving that gift to that person, all that book does is show them their inability and failure to read. The same here is true with God's law. Is that God's law is good, it's perfect. It is the way that he wants us to live our lives. But yet, as we get into the law, the law just shows us our incompetence, our failure, our weakness, and our inability to do what God intends us to do. And so what the law does, and this is why some people don't like the Bible, is because when they read the Bible, when they read the law of God, it shows them their inadequacies and it makes them feel like they'll never measure up, which they won't, which none of us can. And therefore it renders us insecure and helpless. That's why a lot of people don't like God's word. But here's some good news. Is that when we hear about the he who knew no sin, the good news is that in every point, you and I have failed to live our lives according to God's standard, Jesus has succeeded. And because you and I are unable to keep the law, Jesus came, lived on this earth to keep the law perfectly for us. See, Adam and Eve failed. Where they failed, Jesus succeeded. The nation of Israel 
failed and where they failed, Jesus succeeded. And where you and I fail every day, Jesus succeeds. Our failures are covered by his perfections. You know, we see a little bit of this in Jesus's understanding of this and our understanding of this when Jesus is baptized. Jesus is starting his ministry and he goes to his cousin, John the Baptist. And uh, he, uh, John the Baptist has been out baptizing people. Those people who have repented of their sins and as a symbol of their life change, uh, they would be baptized. They would go under the water and come out of the water. And so Jesus goes to where John was uh, in Bethany beyond the Jordan. He goes out here on the River Jordan. John's out there preaching. And Jesus comes to John and says, John, I want you to baptize me. And John's like, no way. You should be baptizing me. In other words, Jesus, you don't need to be baptized. There's nothing you need to repent of. And John was absolutely right. Jesus had nothing to repent of. But Jesus came in our place and he was baptized to show that we needed to repent. See, Jesus lived a life that we should have lived but couldn't live. And there in that moment, Jesus is being baptized. The Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. And the voice of God the Father says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You have done what you have been, you're supposed to do. And Jesus, as our representative, lives that life. And so as soon as Jesus is baptized, as soon as he does that, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit leads him to the wilderness to be tempted. And so for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus doesn't eat any food. And he goes out. And at the end of that, Satan comes to him and he tempts him in the area of desire. He tempts him in the area of pleasure and pride and power. Those are the same areas that Satan tempted Adam and Eve, the same areas that you and I are tempted in, and we often fail. And so Jesus here was legitimately tempted by the devil, yet without sin. Satan tempted Jesus in the level of desire. There's nothing wrong to be hungry. There's nothing wrong to want to eat Jesus here. His first temptation of Satan was to turn stones into bread. And he could have done that. He could have went bippity-boppity-boo and had a Chick-fil-A feast. But yet, even though Satan tempted him at the level of desire and it was a legitimate temptation, Jesus had no desire to sin. And so in all of these temptations, Jesus succeeded. And everywhere we fail, Jesus succeeds. Everywhere we lose, Jesus wins. Everywhere we're weak, Jesus is strong. And so Jonathan Edwards speaks about this and writes about this. And he says that Jesus is the combination of qualities and virtues that seem incompatible in a person. Jesus combines high majesty with the greatest humility, the strongest commitment to justice with astounding mercy and grace. He was completely self-sufficient, yet entirely trusted and relied upon his heavenly father. He has tenderness without weakness, boldness without harshness, humility without uncertainty, accompanied with towering confidence. He was unbending in his convictions with complete approachability. He insisted on truth, but always bathed in love, power without insensitivity, integrity without rigidity, and passion without prejudice. No one has ever lived like Jesus. No one. Another scholar says that no one has ever found a word that Jesus should have said. No one's ever found a word he should have said. And no one's ever found a deed that he should have done. Jesus never made a false step. He never hit a wrong note. He never slapped anyone at the Oscars. 
He kept the law completely, loves the Father perfectly, never retaliated, loves his enemies, prays for those who persecute him, makes peace with those who are against him, hungers and thirsts for righteousness, is pure in heart and is the light of the world. No one has ever lived life like Jesus, ever. Impeccable character. But not only is he who knew no sin, the one with impeccable character, but also I want you to hear his incredible claims. He says here, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. The question is this, who is the who? Who are you? Who, 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 who? Who is the one who knew no sins? Who did Jesus claim to be? Jesus claimed to be God. He's the God-man, human and divine. This is what separates Jesus from all other religious leaders. Buddha emphatically said, I'm not a God. Muhammad never, ever claimed to be Allah. Confucius never identified himself as divine, yet Jesus repeatedly and, repeatedly and continually claimed to be the God of the universe who is the only way to heaven. And for years, this has been a conundrum. For years, people have struggled with Jesus. Jesus is the most influential figure in human history. People that aren't even believers, aren't even Christians, have quoted Jesus. People look to Jesus. They look to his teaching. And they, they know that he is the most influential person. And yet he has claims to be God and the only way to heaven. And the problem is, is for a lot of people, is that there's no way for people to deny that Jesus came into the world claiming what he claimed. Jesus claimed to have the key to eternal life. Jesus claimed to have the key to the meaning of all things. And billions of people throughout the centuries have staked their lives on the fact that he was right. People have died with the conviction that Jesus was who he says he was. Reza Aslan, who is a former Muslim who converted to Christianity and then converted back to Islam, said this, the Gospels are, of course, extremely useful in revealing how the early Christians view Jesus. But they do not tell us much about how Jesus viewed himself. Well, that's a misreading of the Gospels. Because Jesus irrefutably and unmistakably told us who he was. And so Jesus made a lot of claims. So one claim that you see that Jesus made is Jesus claimed that he had the power to forgive sins. In Mark chapter 2, uh, Jesus says that he has the power to forgive sins. He said, go and sin no more. I forgive you. You've been forgiven. The Jews were astonished because they knew that only God can make that claim. Only God can forgive sin. And so when Jesus forgave that man his sins, he was saying that all sins were against him. He is God. And so all the laws are broken. Uh, uh, it's his laws that are broken and his love that is offended by their sin. Jesus claimed to have the power to forgive sins. Secondly, he claimed that he alone can give eternal life. Jesus is the only one, uh, or pardon me, only God has the power to give life. Only God has the power to take life. And Jesus claimed to have that ability. He claimed the power to give life. He claimed the power to take life. He also claimed the power to actually destroy death and overcome it. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus claimed to be the judge of the world. 
Only God has both infinite knowledge and the right as a creator to evaluate every person. Yet Jesus states in John chapter 3, 18, Mark chapter 14, verse 62, that he has that authority. And not only that, but Jesus claimed that you and I will be judged in the end primarily based on our attitude towards him. Jesus claimed that he had the right to receive worship. John chapter 5, verse 23, Revelation chapter 22, verse 8 and 9, that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, claiming at the very least equality with God, that neither great persons nor even angels would accept. Jesus accepted the worship from other people. Jesus made claims that said that if you received him, you're receiving God the Father. Jesus allowed people to worship him. And the other claim of Jesus is that Jesus claimed that he was the only way to God, the truth itself, and the source of all life. Jesus said in John 14, 6 and 7, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God, Jesus didn't say, I'm a good way to heaven. Jesus didn't say, I'm the best way to heaven. Jesus says, I'm the only way to heaven. And if you've known me, you've known my Father also. From, from now on, you do know him because you've seen him. How have you seen him? In me, in me. Beyond Jesus' own claims, the earliest Christians taught 15, 25 years after Jesus' death, found in all of, rid of, uh, all of the writ of the Old Testament, or the New Testament, they claimed, they believed that Jesus was God. The earliest Christians, immediately after his death, worshiped Jesus. Scholars say that the only explanation is that Jesus was the source of the claims and that his continual, powerful assertions of deity eventually broke through their walls of resistance. The only way that Jewish men and women would have bowed down and worshiped Jesus is they had to believe with all their hearts he was God. And think about this. Jesus' own half-brothers and sisters worshiped him as God. And the only way that your brother or sister is ever going to worship you as God is you better be God. So those are his claims. What do you do with those claims? C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, who was once an atheist, talks about this famous trilemma. Is Jesus a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he the Lord of all? And here's what he writes. He says, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can't shut him up for a fool. You can, you, or he says, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he didn't intend to. Who is Jesus? Who you believe Jesus is is the most important fundamental thing in your life. And so the only way that Jesus could ever be he who knew no sin is he had to be God in the flesh. So Tim Keller succinctly brings us together, and here's what he says. He says that Jesus' character is too great to conclude that Jesus was a deranged person. His character was too great to conclude that he was a liar. Either, either, he, is, either he is God or he is a fool. And if he's a fool, then how do you explain his character? If he's a deranged lunatic, how do you explain his life? If he is a liar, how do you explain his impeccable record and his character? 
But then the other side is that if Jesus is just a wonderful teacher with impeccable character, then how do you explain his claims to be God? How do you explain his claims to be the only way to heaven? You have to make a decision. Last night I had a young lady. She brought me the same questions I'm bringing to you. And and I said, look, at the end of the day, either Jesus is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. Either he is who he says he is or he is a deranged lunatic fool and we should shut down this church, close down, sell the property, split it all amongst us and have a great day. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. So we see his impeccable character. We hear and see his incredible claims. Let's end with this, his inexhaustible compassion. The one who knew no sin, completely perfect, for our sakes he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. The one who knew no sin is the same one. He lived an absolutely, completely perfect life. He's the same one who never recoiled from sinners. Not one time as you read the Old Testament or the New Testament will you read that Jesus recoiled from sinful people. Like, if, you, if you're holy and pious and you see someone that's not as holy as you think you are or who you pretend to be, you'll kind of go away from them. You'll stay away from them. Those are people, unclean, evil people. I'm good, they're bad. You, you keep away from them. If I get around them, they'll, they'll make me dirty. They'll contaminate me, whatever. It's kind of like, you know, like if you've ever been kind of dressed up and you're, you're looking good and your kids have been outside and they're sweaty and they just got done eating chocolate chip cookies and they've got chocolate all over their fingers and they want to give you a big hug. And you're like, no, that's okay right now. We're good. I love you, kid, but you're good. You stay right there. Jesus never recoils from sinners. As a matter of fact, rather than running from sinners, Jesus ran towards sinners because Jesus is the one who calls us to be reconciled to God, verse 20. And then it's Jesus whose love for us is so great that it calls us who have experienced his love to give our lives in serving him. And Paul says this in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. All throughout the gospels, one thing you'll see is that Jesus had tremendous love for sinners. Even though Jesus did not sin, lived a completely perfect and pure life before God, never compromised, and as God had a holy hatred towards sin, Jesus hung out with sinners. As a matter of fact, if Jesus hung out with anybody, they were a sinner. He also, particularly, not only just hung out with sinners, but he also hung out with those that society would say were the center of sinners. Prostitutes, tax collectors, traitors, meatheads, deadheads, crackheads, all of them. He deliberately and tenderly touched lepers, people that were physically and ceremonially contaminated, but yet they were desperate for human touch. Jesus hung out with the social, racial, political, moral outsiders of his day. Craig Bloomberg, who is a scholar, wrote the following. He says, the religiously respectable of Jesus's day refused to associate or eat with people considered sinners, such as tax collectors and prostitutes for fear of being morally contaminated by them. Their friendship and love were given only conditionally to those who had made themselves clean and pure. But Jesus turned the dominant social pattern on its head. 
Jesus freely ate with the moral and social outcast. Notice what he says. He did not fear that they would contaminate him. Rather, he expected that his love would infect and change them. And again and again, that's what happened. Jesus did not compromise. He never lowered his standards. He didn't water down anything. But yet he had remarkable, inexhaustible compassion for sinners. See, Jesus did not simply love people. Jesus, the, Jesus is the one who is love. Jesus did not come to show us the love of the Father. He is the love of the Father. Love is spelled J-E-S-U-S. Jesus is the perfect love of God for those who are imperfect. And here's the thing about this love. It is not a cheap love. It is not an ooey-gooey, easy, non-committal, conditional love. Jesus is love like Jesus is perfect. It's eternal. It's strong. It was for love that Jesus came and lived on this earth as long as he did. It was for love that Jesus experienced the human condition of being hungry and thirsty, despised, rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused, suffocated, lonely, beaten, betrayed. And he did every bit of that without sin. Why would he go through that? To save you and I. That's why he says in verse 19, Paul says that God in Jesus, in that perfect life, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. It is only through the perfect life of Jesus that God was saving sinners without destroying sinners. Only through a perfect substitute could the imperfect sinner be forgiven. Only through Jesus can those who are guilty be set free. Only through Jesus. There's a story in John 8 about a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, sexual sin. According to the law of Moses, the penalty for this sin was death. They took this woman out and they brought this woman to Jesus. They wanted to see what Jesus would say because Jesus has been preaching love and preaching forgiveness and been hanging out with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors. And they, they, they came to Jesus with their accusations. They came with their condemnation. People with rocks in their hands. Jesus sees this woman, sees the crowd, and he gets down on the ground and he starts writing. We don't know exactly what he wrote. Some scholars say he wrote the Ten Commandments. Other scholars say that he wrote the sins, the specific sins of all the other people standing there. One by one, Jesus says to them, he that's without sin cast a first stone. And one by one, each and every one of those men left the scene. Some of them maybe had even known who this prostitute was. And one by one they left. And the only one that was left to condemn this woman was Jesus. And Jesus is the only one who could have taken all of those rocks that were left by all of those men and thrown all of those rocks at that woman. And yet Jesus looks at that woman and says, where are your accusers? And one by one they all left. She says, they're nowhere. Jesus says, who is there to condemn thee? She says, they're all gone. The only one that's left is you. And here's what Jesus says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Jesus' love for her was far greater than her sin against him. I don't know about you, but I was sinking deep in sin. 
far from the peaceful shore, very stained, deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry and from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me, love lifted me when nothing else could help, love lifted me. Let's end with this. I know you're ready. Jesus lived a life we couldn't live so that we can experience a life we never deserve. Jesus lived a life we couldn't live so that we can experience an eternal life we do not deserve. So when sin creeps up on you, when you feel guilty, despised, shattered before a holy God, when the law shows you just how far you've fallen, just how unable you are to live the life that God intends for you. Know that Jesus has done for you what you are not able to do. Where you have failed to be the person God has intended you to be, Jesus has succeeded. Where you have failed the test of temptation, Jesus endured temptation. Where you have sinned, Jesus was righteous. It doesn't mean that you continue in sin. It doesn't mean that you live a life where it doesn't matter. But it, when it matters, ultimately is this, is that we're going to sin, but our sin is many. God's grace is more. J.D. Greer put it best. And if you're a Christian, that in Christ, there's nothing you can do that would make God love you more. And then in Christ, there's nothing you could do that would make God love you, love you less than he loves you in Jesus right now. You are not saved by your works. You're saved by Jesus' works for you. John chapter six, verse 37, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This was John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. I mentioned earlier, this was his favorite verse. He loved the part where it says, I will never cast out. Will never cast out. He loved that little verse so much, he wrote a book on it. And he wrote this book for people who were skeptical of Jesus' love and Jesus' promise. And he wrote the following. But you say, I'm a great sinner. Christ says, I will never cast you out. But you say, I'm an old sinner. Christ says, I will never cast you out. But you say, I'm a hard-hearted sinner. Christ says, I will never cast you out. You say, I'm a backsliding sinner. Christ says, I will never cast you out. You say, I have served Satan all of my days. And Jesus Christ says, I will never cast you out. You say, I've sinned against the light. And Christ says, I will never cast you out. You say, I've sinned against mercy. Christ says, I will never cast you out. You say, I have no good thing with me to bring. And Jesus Christ says, I will never cast you out. If you come to him and you're honest with him, he will forgive you. He'll heal the brokenness of your heart. He will help you find your value in him. Just as April did in her story. You can search by moving. You can search by buying things. You can search through all kinds of substances to find satisfaction, but you'll never find that satisfaction your heart is longing for in anything other than Jesus. And if you're here today, it doesn't matter how bad you are, he'll never cast you out. And if you're here today, it doesn't matter how good you are because you'll never be good enough. But if you come to him, he'll never cast you out. 
Would everyone just bow their heads, close their eyes? Those of you in this room that do not know Jesus as your Savior, I want to talk to you specifically. Just like April, I want to give you that opportunity where right now, just as you are, just where you are, you can ask Jesus Christ to forgive you and save you. You can ask him to come into your life and surrender your life to him. So if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've never given him your life, would you just pray with me? It's not some magical prayer. It's faith in Jesus that saves. Would you pray a prayer like this, Lord Jesus? I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I am not perfect. God, I'm broken. I feel worthless. I hate what I do. But Jesus, I believe that you lived the perfect life I couldn't live. And Jesus, I believe you died for me on the cross and that you rose from the dead. And Jesus, today, I ask you to take my life. I surrender my life to you. Forgive me of my sins. Be the Lord and Savior of my life. Heal my heart. In Jesus' name, every head bowed, every eyes closed. Those in you in this, in this room, if you just prayed a prayer like that and you just trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want you to do something bold. No one's looking around. Will you just look up at me? Just look up at me. I see you. I see you looking at me. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that little card in a moment and I want you to put your name on it and just say your name and a phone number and an email and just say, today I gave my life to Jesus and we'll contact you. We'll get in touch with you and we'll help you understand your walk. Or maybe you need to talk to somebody a little bit more. There'll be pastors right down here in the front. I'll be down here. We'd love to talk with you and go to our next steps here. But we want to help you. Those many of you, I saw quite a few eyes that have made that decision for Christ today. I want you to make it known. Make it known. Father, in Jesus' name, do what only you can do for your glory. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing the gospel. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.